Father, how appropriate it is that we ended the last song with amazing grace, having talked about that and prayed about that this morning. We are all here by your grace. And by your grace, I am here and ask that you would once again speak through me to encourage and build up the body of Christ to the end that you may be glorified. And all God's people said, amen. Take a seat, get your Bibles out if you would. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We'll be looking at this verse as we wrap up our Lord's instruction to us on prayer. In fact, yeah, Matthew chapter 6. Since our Lord's instructions on prayer is couched in the middle of his famous Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, I think it's necessary kind of as we take a brief look at these chapters to kind of give us a, a bigger picture again as we've broken down each of the individual petitions in the Lord's Prayer. So Matthew chapters 5 through 7, as you may recall, Jesus is giving the standards of his kingdom. Okay? He has begun his ministry in chapter 4. The, the Spirit's come upon him. He went through the temptation. He starts his ministry, and large crowds are following him as he teaches and preaches and heals. And a large crowd gathers, and he goes up on the mount, and he begins to preach them and say, listen, this is the standards for my kingdom. And they stand in stark contrast to the supposed standards of the day. You might recall that the religious leadership had developed a system of religion that they thought was good enough or adequate enough to get them into the kingdom. Uh, they were greatly deceived. Their standards fell woefully short of God's standards. So in chapter 5, kind of a great way of understanding chapter 5, Jesus saying, your theology, Pharisees, Sadducees, it's inadequate. It, is, it falls short. In chapter 6, where we are, he's talking about their religious activities being inadequate. They're giving, they're praying, as we're talking about that, and then they're fasting. And in order to live up to the standards of his kingdom, he's saying the disciples, the true disciples, they need to change the way they give, the way they pray, and the way they fasted. And for our study this morning, we're focusing on prayer, and we'll conclude with that. And it's interesting, I've had a number of you come up to me and talk about, again, how important this study on prayer has been, how it's changing you, and we are having more people watch the sermons on prayer than I think any other that we've had. There's a need for people to learn how to pray, starting with myself, because all the things you should not do in prayer, I'm guilty of. So beginning in chapter 6, verse 5, Jesus begins to attack the prayers of the religious leaders. Can you see that? Their prayers were self-centered, and the boy, am I guilty of that. They prayed before men, I didn't do that, to put themselves on display so that men might see how pious they were. Therefore, the very heart of their prayers was their own self, their own will. And when you pray this way, it inevitably leads to the second error in practice of prayer. That's found in verse 7. They engaged in a constant badgering of God, as if God needed to be reminded of their needs. And he would only listen 
because of their many words. I am guilty of that. I've prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and talked and talked and talked and talked and talked. And quite frankly, it really wasn't a fun way to pray. And over the years, I said, I've observed that this manner of praying is typical in the American church. And just like the other disciples, I and all of us, we need to change the way we pray. This is why the disciples say, Lord, teach us how to pray. So I have invited all of us to kind of learn how to pray from the teachings of Jesus Christ. Because after all, he is the master teacher, right? So I want to remind us of this, though, which is, I think is really the heart of prayer, that all of our Lord's instruction on prayer lead to this one inescapable conclusion. Communion with God. It's a relationship, and you are praying so that you can fellowship, or you can commune, you can be with God. I shared this before, I'm going to share it again. I've experienced this, and it's, it's good to see others have as well. The R.A. Torrey said it best. He said, we should never utter one syllable of prayer, either in public or in private, until we are definitely conscious that we have come into the presence of God and are actually praying to him. And it was a foreign concept to me. I would go and bow my head, and I would just start talking and talking and talking and talking and talking. And I don't like to talk. Ask my wife. <laughs> but I did it with God. And I can remember when he's... Tori writes, I can remember when that thought transformed my prayer life. I was brought up to pray. I was taught to pray so early in life that I have not the slightest recollection of who taught me to pray. Nevertheless, prayer was largely a mere matter of form. Can you relate to that? There was little real thought of God, no real approach to God as well. And even after I was converted, yes, even after I'd entered the ministry, Prayer was still largely a matter of form. But the day came when I realized what real prayer meant. I realized that prayer was having an audience with God. Actually coming into the presence of God and asking and getting things from him. And the realization of that fact, Tory writes, it transformed his prayer life. Before that, prayer had been a mere duty, sometimes a very irksome duty. But from that time on, prayer has not been merely a duty but a privilege, one of the most highly esteemed privileges of life. Before that, the thought I had was, how much time must I spend in prayer? You guys ever think that? I know I need to spend time with God, so how much time must I spend in prayer? In our current Christian culture in America, doesn't help because we have these timed devotionals. You ever notice that? As if our time is our time and we are in control of our time. Control is an illusion, folks. The thought that now possesses me, Tori says, is how much time may I spend in prayer without neglecting the other privileges and duties in my life. So while the heart of prayer is to commune with God... The reason we pray is simple. It's so that God may be glorified. So remember, prayer is the occasion for God to demonstrate his glory. We pray so that God may be glorified. And that is the complete opposite of how I first learned how to pray. Because prayer was all about me getting something from God. 
not liking some circumstance in my life and wanting God to change it. John 14, 13, great verse. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, Jesus says. Well, why will you do whatever we ask in his name? That the Father may be glorified in the Son. We pray so that God may be glorified. So God is the focus of our prayers. And we discover this early on as we outline the Lord's Prayer. And here's a brief outline. You may remember this, but it really helps me, and I hope it will be useful to you in how to pray. It's a series of Ps. The first we call is the paternity of God, our Father in heaven. We begin praying by addressing a loving Heavenly Father. Now, we're not talking about some distant deity who is unconcerned. We don't believe in a, you know, a, a God that simply has created everything and has wound the world up and sit backs and let it all just kind of play out. No, God is intimately involved in our lives. He's not a father only in a sense of position or title. He is loving, personally involved, absolutely intimate. And Jesus was about to bring God to men that made a new intimacy to God that had never been possible to mankind. And when they would pray, there were walls. And only certain times of the year could one man go into the Holy of Holies in the presence of God. And while God is the Father of all creation, He is not the Father of all in relation. The right to call him father, and it is a right, and it is a privilege, is reserved only for his children. And that makes prayer a privilege. So that's the, the pardon of, or the paternity of God. This is the prominence of God. The phrase, hallowed be your name. Prayer is not to begin with ourselves. It begins with God. A.W. Pink says this, how clearly then is the fundamental duty in prayer set forth? Self in all its needs must be given a secondary place, and the Lord freely accorded the preeminence in our thoughts and supplications. This petition, hallowed be thy name, must take the precedence for the glory of God's great name is the ultimate end of all things. So again, think about this way. Hallowed be thy name is a warning against self-seeking prayer. And this prayer reminds us that we bring from the very beginning, the howling of his name to fullness when we live a life of obedience to him. Now, there are plenty of people who have right thoughts of God, right? But they don't have right lives of God. And so, hallowed be thy name is, you're first in all areas of my life. Not only when I'm praying to you, but in every other area of my life. So it's just not that God's name be hallowed in heaven, right? It needs to be hallowed on earth. This is the prayer that says, God, be on display in and through me. Use me to make you look good. Because that's what Erica does for me. She makes me look good. She definitely is the eye candy, right? The program of God. This is your, the phrase, your kingdom come. Obviously, God's will is done in heaven. God's kingdom, his reign and his rule is established in heaven. His name is hallowed in heaven, but his will is not done perfectly on earth. His kingdom clearly isn't established fully on earth, and his name obviously is not hallowed properly on earth. Now, here's the, here's the kicker. In order for his name to be hallowed on earth, 
and his will to be done on earth, his kingdom must first be fully established. So a true child of God concerns himself not so much with his own plans as he does with the plans of his heavenly Father. So in other words, praying right is not letting God under my agenda. It is calling God to fulfill his own agenda through me. So how can we call ourselves Christians who have affirmed the lordship of Christ over our lives when we are not preoccupied with his causes but with our own? It is so easy to get distracted and caught up in building your own kingdom that you forget we all at times forget to build into the kingdom of God. To get to that point takes quite a transformation in the life of a believer. To come to place, instead of saying, my kingdom come, I say, thy kingdom come. This is a prayer that says, we seek his kingdom first. This is what we are praying when we pray, your kingdom come. Do you remember this story? It's a very powerful story. It's a brief one, but the story of Alexander the Great, the small company of soldiers, they're approaching a strongly fortified walled city. And Alexander raised his voice and demanded to see the king of that city. And when the king arrived, Alexander ordered him to surrender the city and everyone inside. And the king laughed. Why should I surrender to you? You can't do us any harm. But Alexander offered to give the king a demonstration. He ordered his men to line up single file and start marching. And he marched them straight toward a cliff. The townspeople gathered on the wall and watched in shocked silence as one by one his soldiers marched without hesitation right off the cliff to their deaths. After 10 soldiers died, Alexander ordered the rest of the men to return to his side. The townspeople and the king immediately surrendered to Alexander the Great. They realized that if a few men were actually willing to die at the command of their leader, then nothing would stop his eventual victory. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the plan of God here. That's the next phrase. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Heidelberg Catechism, question 124, asks this. What does this third petition mean? That your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, it means this, and it's just interesting how they word this. Help us and all people to reject our own wills and to obey your will without any backtalk. That's literally what it says. No backtalk. You hear that, kids? No backtalk. Can I get an amen from the congregation? I think I just did from Don Cruzon. There we go. In other words, your will alone is good, it says. Help us one and all to carry out the work we are called to as willingly and faithfully as the angels in heaven. Well, of course, remember this. How do the angels in heaven do God's will in heaven? Well, they do it without wavering, completely, sincerely, fervently, readily, swiftly, constantly, and willingly. You just study that in the Bible, you see this is how the angels do God's will. Without wavering, completely, sincerely, fervently, readily, swiftly, constantly, willingly. So kids, when I ask you to take up the trash, how are you to do that? Or David, Chase, pick up your room. Without wavering, completely, sincerely, fervently, readily, swiftly, constantly, willingly, right? All the parents said, amen, right? So this is a prayer that says, God, your will is my priority. 
No matter what it costs, it's your will. My will is secondary. Then we get to a shift from God to us, the provision of God. Give us this day our daily bread. This fourth petition introduces our needs into the Lord's prayer. But I want to be clear on this. Even though God is primarily exalted in our prayers in the first half of the Lord's prayer, the second half still exalts God and glorifies God. It keeps him on the throne and directs all the attention to God. Well, how does God hallow his name, bring his kingdom, and do his will on earth? By giving us our daily bread, by forgiving us our debts, and by leading us in our lives. See, God is brought to earth. Heaven is brought to earth through who? His children, through us. Yes, Jesus Christ, but through us. And only his children. See that? God is brought to earth in the second part of this prayer. And the purpose is still the same, the glory of God. So the last three requests say, God, glorify yourself in our daily provision. Glorify yourself in our constant forgiveness. Glorify yourself in the leading and the directing of your spirit in our lives. God, be on display in your world that your kingdom may come to earth through us. That's his plan. It's through his children. It's why we were saved. He has work for us to do. Work that he has prepared beforehand. We are to give God the privilege and opportunity to reveal his glory through the meeting of the deepest of human needs. And the scriptures are full of God's promise to meet our needs, correct? And it's a tremendous blessing to know that God is a God who has promised to meet our physical needs. And our Heavenly Father has abundantly provided for us. And this is a prayer, give us this day our daily bread, that says, God, I believe your promises that you will meet my daily needs. And you know that to be true in your experience. Amen? You have your daily needs. Let me get to the pardon of God. Forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. The pardon of God. And that was really last week. It's, it's forgiveness. Remember the story of the missionaries in northern Alaska? were translating the Bible into the language of the Eskimos. They discovered there was no word in that language for forgiveness. And so after much patient listening, however, they discovered a word that means not being able to think about it anymore. That word was used throughout the translation to represent forgiveness. Because God's promise to repentant sinners is what? I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. It's gone. And that's great, because since all of our sins, past, present, and future, were forgiven by God on the cross to pray, forgive us our debts, it doesn't mean we're asking God to forgive our sins again, but rather it's talking about confessing your sin. And the older I get, it seems like the more I am constantly confessing my sin. It's interesting if you ever study the life of the Apostle Paul. Early in his ministry, he was a humble man, but he considered himself an apostle, which was true. And he considered himself on par with the other apostles. But at the end of his life, he said he was the chief sinner of all, the least of the apostles. 
It was a recognition of his radical, corrupt nature and probably being worn down by the constant reminder of his sin as he goes to war with that sin nature that we're struggling with. But I'm so grateful to God that we have this phrase here, forgive us our debts, because we need to always be confessing our sins to God. And I do it so I may experience the joy of fellowship with God, free my conscience from guilt. Because the Lord's Prayer recognizes that man's greatest need and deepest need is not our daily bread. We need to be forgiven. And again, consider this thought on the importance of our Lord's places on forgiveness. Verses 14 and 15 explain the last part of verse 12. As we have forgiven our debtors. So from verses 12 to 15, the word forgive is used, remember this? Six times. But pay attention to this. Five of the six uses of the word forgive speak directly to us forgiving others. So our own forgiving attitude, we, we learn through this prayer of all things, it's an indispensable condition of receiving the forgiveness of our sins. The idea is before we ever seek forgiveness for our own sin against God, we already have to forgive, have forgiven those who have sinned against us. And because everyone in here is shackled with a sinful nature, you're going to offend people. You're going to need to be forgiven. You're going to be offended, and you're going to have to forgive That's why Lord Herbert put it best when he said, he who cannot forgive others breaks the bridge over which he himself must pass. So this is a prayer, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, that says, God, I have forgiven others, now forgive my sins that I may enjoy you, and I may commune with you, I may fellowship with you. Now finally, with all that being said, so we're halfway down with the sermon, we get to the new part of the sermon, the protection of God, Matthew 6, 13. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This final petition, this final request is saying this, Lord, not only do we need forgiveness, but we need more than that. We need preservation. We need deliverance. This is the cry of the heart that asks God for deliverance from approaching evil. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that this world is getting more and more darker and more and more evil and, quite frankly, more and more hostile to God's children. To truly understand this prayer, we must discuss the difference between testing slash trials and temptation. Now, the word temptation here in this verse, it's a neutral word that means a test or a trial, and it implies a process. Okay. So we, so are we to ask God to not test us? No. When the prayer reads, "Lead us not into trials or tests," the implication is this: Lord, don't ever lead me into a trial or a test that will provide such a temptation that I'll not be able to resist it and I will sin. Don't put me in any process of testing. where I will find sin irresistible. Remember what God said to the Israelites? I'm humbling you. I am testing you to do good to you in the end. This is the prayer of Jesus at Gethsemane. Remember this? 
Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground. He prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. I like that about Jesus, because there obviously was something in him, in his humanity, that he didn't want to go through this trial. I like that about Jesus, and I bet you do too, because we can all relate to it. There was a dread and a fear in our hearts about going through certain trials or tests. You know, I've been through some difficult things in my life, and yet I found myself kind of taken back and, and have not had to go through this, hope I don't ever have to, but there was a, a couple of ours that uh, were on staff with Camp Crusade in 1996. We were all a staff team, we were working together in a summer project in Ocean City, New Jersey. This couple um, has three children, and I believe it was an undiagnosed food allergy that took the life of their son at school. I just felt how tragic that would be if one of my children were taken from me. And you think, how could I survive that? Right? I mean, I, we all have parents, and they're older, and they'll eventually pass away, but we kind of expect that. But we don't expect, we expect to, you know, our children to outlive us. And yet, this prayer is like, you know, don't put me through a test like that, that it's, it's, it's too much for me. But God knows all things. You walk through that pain, you survive, and you move on. And he forms you in those, the furnace of affliction. So even in the midst of those trials, there's a working of God's strength. That's the way we get through it. There's an exercise of spiritual muscle, and we're better and stronger for it. This also means that the Lord has to work out our whole life because there are certain things that he knows that we need to grow. But if they came to us at the wrong time in our lives, perhaps while we were too young in the faith, we wouldn't be able to handle them. Instead of growing, we would fail. We'd fall to them. Peter wasn't ready for the cross when he thought he was, right? And he failed. Only years later would he be ready for the cross, and even more, consider himself not worthy to suffer as his Lord did, but crucify me upside down, and that's how he died. So the Lord then has to order kind of our whole life. So there's no point in our life where we will ever be tempted in a situation where we don't have the strength to resist and to endure. And I want to be crystal clear on this next point. God tests us, okay? Satan is the one who tempts us. But God tests us to develop perseverance. James 1.3, the testing of our faith develops endurance, perseverance. But see, Satan will tempt you to sin. So in our trials that God brings to perfect us, we find Satan there with his temptations. So we understand now that God's purpose is always for good. But Satan tries to turn it to evil. And I just want to give you three points to meditate on concerning this final petition. The first is this, that God tests perfect. 
Satan tempts to fail. And he perfects us through trials. Scripture tells us he refines us as through fiery trials as a silversmith refines silver. Do you remember the woman who watched silver be refined? She says this, as, the watch, as she watched the silversmith, he held a piece of silver over the fire and let it heat up. He explained that in refining silver, one needed to hold the silver in the middle of the fire where the flames were hottest as to burn away all the impurities. The woman thought about God holding us in such a hot spot. Then she thought about God in the verse that says, he sits as a refiner and purifier of silver. Malachi 3.3. 3. She asked the silversmith if it was true that he had to sit there in front of the fire the whole time the silver was being refined. And the man answered, yes. He not only had to sit there holding the silver, but he had to keep his eyes on the silver the entire time it was in the fire. If the silver was left a moment too long in the flames, of course it would be destroyed. And the woman was silent for a moment. Then she asked the silversmith, how do you know when the silver is fully refined? Do you remember this? you know what the answer to this is? He smiled at her and answered, oh, that's easy. When I see my image in it. You see, God is refining you and will take you through tests to perfect the character of Christ so that what is more visible in your life isn't you, isn't me, it's him, particularly his son. The furnace of affliction is the, in the family of God is always for refinement. It's never for destruction. It may feel like it, but God will strengthen you to walk through it, to get through it. You'll be better for it. And if you allow him, you will be more like him. So I say to you, the difficult times you go through don't avoid it. In other words, don't avoid conflict. Lean into it. Let God do the work in and through you. Let him form his character in you. It's painful, it hurts. But he's preparing you to be a citizen of his kingdom. It's for your own benefit. But this prayer is a prayer that says here as well, number two, it's a prayer that is based on self-distrust. See, we're reminded in this prayer that I'm a sinner. I am wholly inadequate to deal with evil on my own. I realize as a, as a child of the kingdom, I live in a different kingdom right now. It's a fallen world. That fallen world just pounds on me, and it pounds on God's children. All the temptations... But we know that within our own strength and our own humanity, we can't resist it. So I don't trust myself, but I throw myself onto God. And finally, God always provides a way through temptations. No temptation, same word here, by the way, is used in, the, in this prayer is used in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 that I'm reading to you. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted... He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Again, it's you, you walk through, you go through the temptation. You don't avoid it. 
God never, ever allows a trial in your life that is too hard to handle. You're not going to get a test that isn't one that someone else hasn't already gone through. In the midst of it, you'll discover that God is faithful. You can never say, this is too much for me, because God will not allow you any test that is beyond your ability to endure it. He will always provide a way out. And of course, the way out is through the trial. With him, folks, with him, with him, with him, by your side every step of the way. You are never alone. And that should get an amen from the congregation, right? (laughs) The early American Indians had a unique practice of training young braves. The night of a young tribal boy's 13th birthday, after learning hunting, scouting, and fishing skills, he was put to one final test. I love this story. He was placed in a dense forest to spend the entire night alone. Until then, he had never been away from the protection of his family and the tribe. But on this night, he was blindfolded and taken several miles away. And when he took off the blindfold, he was in the middle of a thick woods, and he was terrified. Every time a twig snapped, he visualized a wild animal ready to produce, or ready to pounce, excuse me. After what seemed like an eternity, dawn broke, and the first rays of sunlight entered the interior of the forest. And looking around, the boy saw flowers, trees, the outline of the path, And then to his utter astonishment, he beheld the figure of a man standing just a few feet away, armed with a bow and arrow. See, it was his father. He had been there all night long. This prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, is a prayer that says, God, don't ever lead me into a trial that will provide such a temptation to sin that that I will not be able to resist it. So you see, it's a very practical prayer, practical way to pray. I mean, God is dealing with the very issues in our lives. And finally, for the next two minutes, we have what we call the preeminence of God. Now, some Bibles don't have this phrase in there. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Again, some manuscripts don't have Jesus saying this, which is why this textology is not included in every version of the Bible, but yet some commentators say this. It almost would have to be included because the Jews would never have closed a prayer on a negative note. Either way, this statement is true. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. It's a fitting end to this prayer because the focus is on God. Because in the very beginning, the prayer is what? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And how does it end? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So it begins with God. It ends with God. It's all about God. And so I'm asking you again this morning to pattern your prayers after the Lord's prayer. This is how the Lord taught us to pray. And pray that way. Amen? Amen. Okay. All right, get out of here at a decent time. It's getting warm in here, isn't it? A little warm. A little warm. Yeah.